Hello, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, and I'm here with a Slate spoiler special on Spider-Man 3. I'm here with Dan Coyce, who's a writer and editor for New York Magazine's new art and culture blog, Vulture, and is also a sometime contributor to Slate, and who just wrote a slideshow for us about Spider-Man. Hi, Dan. Hi. So uh, Dan and I had the displeasure of seeing Spider-Man 3 together the other night in an extremely overcrowded and uncomfortable and unpleasant uh, giant press screening. And um, maybe it was the, I don't know, conflict of interest presented by the difficulty of the screening itself, but we both walked out saying that the movie, although it had some fun stretches, was essentially an overstuffed and incoherent mess. Am I right? It's true. I think the movie wasn't done any favors by the fact that we were shoved to the front row of the theater and were looking up into the nostrils of its major stars. Yeah, as your wife, one of our viewing companions, pointed out, it's hard to make Kirsten Dunst look fat, and this movie actually made her look like a strange double-chinned kind of dowager because of the angle we were staring at her on this gigantic screen. It's true, but even from a standard seat in the theater, I think we probably still would have agreed that the movie itself attempts to jam so many stories, villains, gags, and bits into its, I don't know, four-hour running time? Yeah, it feels like it. That it ends up feeling like maybe three or four different movies they could have made in succession as opposed to stuffing all this into one. Yeah, absolutely. They're not saving anything for Spider-Man 4 or 5 or 7 or however long we're going to continue to be subjected. And when I say this, by the way, as a fan of the Spider-Man franchise. I like the first two movies. I actually love the second movie. And um, I'm a big fan of Tobey Maguire and Kristen Dunst and you know, not a comic book person like yourself, but I really went in with pretty high hopes, and it didn't have to be the greatest movie in the world to capture my heart. But maybe we should um, focus on the spoilers here, since that's what we're here to do, and just ruthlessly give away some plot secrets in this very twist-heavy movie. Um, Spider-Man wins at the end. <laughs> Sorry and, to give it away, everyone. And Good villains, triumphs. And the, the evil Spider-Man is... Um, finally crushed it's but, true by sound he's crushed by sound sound waves destroy the evil spider-man is that true what, what happens correct. to him at the very end at the very end peter parker makes metal tubes ring and the vibration of the sound waves is what in the end kills oh you see that is incoherent because I, I didn't quite get what role the tubes were playing i thought they were just sort of being rained down on him as one more blunt object that might crush no him no and had one not read the corresponding comic story i think it's quite possible one would never know that from the movie but indeed the evil suit and as a little background for those who are listening the evil suit is a um, black symbiote that flies down from space conveniently lands right next to peter parker's moped and latches onto him turning him at one point into evil spider-man the suit is indeed killed by sound waves Okay. Wow. I didn't know that there was a sonar angle to that death. But we'll get to the final battle with the various um, villains converging on Spider-Man in a minute. Let's talk about some of the various things that made this movie so so incoherent and um, yet at times entertaining, one of which was uh, the character of Harry Osborn, played by James Franco, who, you know, as you know, if you've seen the first two Spider-Man movies, is Peter Parker's best friend from high school, who has now transformed into his ultimate foe because of, well, you want to take it away as the comic book person? Well, sure. Well, um, in the first and second movies, Harry's feelings toward Peter change from great affection to great hatred because he believes Peter, a.k.a. Spider-Man, to uh, have killed his father, who was the Green Goblin in the first movie played by Willem Dafoe. Never mind that Spider-Man, in fact, was only there when the Green Goblin was killed in an attempt to kill Spider-Man himself. Harry blames him for it and therefore trains himself to become the next Green Goblin and sets himself to killing Spider-Man. The movie, of course, Spider-Man 3, features an outstanding use of the most hackneyed of subplots, the device used by screenwriters in trouble, Amnesia. Harry Osborn, early in the movie, hits his head while attempting to kill Spider-Man and wakes up his old, sheepish, 
self with no memory of his hatred of Peter Parker or Spider-Man. In fact, the mild grins and the general low-keyness of his personality make it seem as though several IQ points have been shaved off him as well. <laughs> yeah, this brief interlude in which Harry Osborn wakes up with amnesia and becomes a nice guy again is one of the parts of the movie that I would maintain, although they serve absolutely no plot purpose and are basically pure silliness, are one of the funnest, I mean, one of the only reasons to watch the movie. Harry Osborn with amnesia, as you say, seems to be slightly retarded. Yes. He's constantly glowing and lit in a kind of rosy glow. And, you know, as you know from seeing the previous two movies, Harry Osborn is extremely rich and lives in this giant penthouse in Manhattan and tended all day by a butler. So he has this sort of dream happy life for this brief little interlude in the movie where we see him painting a still life on an easel yes. and just smiling benevolently at everyone. He, he cooks an omelet with Mary Jane at one point, and I would say a four or five minute omelet sequence. <laughs> I mean, you see them chopping the vegetables, they crack the eggs, they mix the eggs, they melt the butter, the eggs sizzle. I mean, it's like a cooking show. It is like a cooking show for one brief moment. And all these signifiers are given in very quick strokes to show us as an audience, Harry Osborne is good. This is good Harry. He, As you say, he's painting a still life. He even turns around from the still life to say, oh, as if to say, I didn't realize you were here. <laughs> and then, of course, at some point, almost as quickly, everything turns around. for a rather around. lame reason, he switches back to being evil, right? I mean... It took a thwack on the head to turn him into amnesiac Harry, right. but it only takes a brief conversation with a painting of his dead father, right. Willem Dafoe, the Green Goblin, to transform him back into the evil Harry again, which doesn't quite seem like like motivation enough. Although Harry has such serious edible issues that maybe just looking at a portrait of Papa is enough to send him back into the evil zone. And to be fair, the portrait is seven to nine feet tall and dominates the room that it sits in. Yeah, so imagine if you real. in your apartment had an enormous painting of Willem Dafoe. <laughs> I would be mad, I tell you, mad. <laughs> yeah, actually, James Franco's kind of finally coming into his own with this character. I always found him kind of wooden in the first two movies, but he's starting to sort of get into the campy glee of, you know, switching from evil to good. Which but, is why it's such a shame that he dies at the end. Right, yeah, so while we're spoiling, let's talk about <laughs> Harry Osborn's death at the end. He's uh, sort of the sacrificial lamb of the movie. He in, is in certainly the sac... Because he's put through the ringer, his character, as he goes from evil to good but retarded to evil again until... At the end, Spider-Man again convinces him to be good. Spider-Man, when the final battle is upon him, and when Mary Jane is in trouble, he flies up to Harry and asks him for his help. This despite the fact that Harry, very recently in the movie, in fact, tortured Mary Jane slightly and forced her to break up with Spider-Man, threatened her life and threatened Spider-Man's life. <laughs> yeah, when you think about it, the moral stakes in this movie are pretty damn low. I mean, people can <laughs> torture and kidnap each other and never really have to apologize. They're and, just and at the end, of in fact, they get a noble death scene, as Harry really does. Uh, one of the wonderful, long-lasting, near-endless death scenes. He, I believe by the timeline of the movie, at something like one in the morning, he suffers two vicious stab wounds to the chest. And it, he dies at dawn. He dies at dawn. <laughs> just in time to say a few last words to Spider-Man and Mary Jane as the sun rises in the east. Yeah, he really milks that death scene, as do the writers, for, for all it's worth. All right, so leaving Harry behind, dying at the top of his high-rise with his stab wound, let's move on to the um, the musical and dance sequences, which are another strange <laughs> surprise in this overstuffed movie. I mean, Probably my favorite them, part but... of the movie, I would say. I mean, even though... The movie is far too long, and none of this stuff deserves to be in it. In the end, I, I could only cackle with glee that a major Hollywood release, perhaps the major Hollywood release of the year, 
felt fit to leave this in, that in no meeting could get this ridiculous scene out, that no pressure from the studio could make Sam Raimi remove his five-minute dance sequence in the movie. I read one review that was speculating, is it possible that Kristen Dunst had a contractual you know, some kind of a <laughs> contractual obligation to sing two songs. Maybe she's going to launch an album pretty soon. It's or possible that Toby Maguire's agent insisted that his piano playing skills finally be showed off in this film. I wonder if he really is playing in that scene. I can't tell if it's digitally manipulated or not. But talk a little bit about Toby's big dance. The dance number occurs in the midst of the evil Spider-Man subplot. The black suits were told by many pseudo-scientific figures in the movie amplifies the aggressive tendencies of whoever wears it. And so we're meant to believe that Peter is in the midst of a, a battle against the darker angels of his nature. Leaving aside the fact, as I mentioned in my slideshow, that this basically goes against everything that makes Spider-Man a pleasurable character in the first place. Dealing with it just on its own terms in the movie, his the evilness of Spider-Man is never really coherent. As you pointed out, we never really understand, uh, is he truly brutal? Is he just crass? Is he overly cocky? Is he violent? What is it about him that makes him the evil Spider-Man? And Spider just tonally speaking, are we meant to laugh at his evil or be frightened by his evil? Right. I mean, I found his evil sort of delightfully funny when, you know, Peter Parker, who's the ultimate nerd, is strutting down the street, Travolta style, sort of pointing at the ladies and essentially getting eye rolls in response. Or it's in... a takeoff of a, of a sort of the evilization right. trope. Or... As in the jazz sequence in, in the club, as in the dance sequence, when Peter Parker brings a new girlfriend to the bar where Mary Jane works and proceeds to humiliate her via a wild and crazy dance sequence, including piano playing, strutting across bar tops, big tango moves, and a huge dip at the end, all done by a, a sort of mascara Peter Parker in a black suit with his hair flopping down over his face like some kind of emo kid. Yeah, kind of faintly goth. Yeah, right? a little bit goth. And the scene is played for such laughs, it seems to me. I mean, that was the only way I could respond to it. But at the same time, the scene ends with him brutally beating up a bouncer and then hitting Mary Jane. And how as an audience are we meant to deal with that? That's the moment where Peter Parker realizes, oh, I've gone too far. But at the same time, it's such a shocking moment to fans of the character to see him strike Mary Jane, even semi-accidentally, that it quashes sort of all the fun of that scene. For well, I guess you're sort viewer. of getting at, you know, one of the, the heart of the problems with this movie and one that existed also in the last Superman movie, which is that the moral stakes are getting really sort of shady in these in these Superman, Spider-Man, comic book hero movies because audiences expect so much violence now when they go to the movies and, you know, so many heads to, to roll that... Um, it's hard for these characters to explore their dark side and still remain someone that we want to watch. It, it is really hard to imagine when you leave this movie where they have to go from here. Right. And and especially for Spider-Man, a character who traditionally has had no dark side and who in the, in the comic books has killed, I think, only once or twice in the entire 35-year history of the comic series or 45-year history, excuse me, of the comic series. For this movie to be based around the fact that Spidey sets out to kill Sandman and believes at one point that he does is a huge leap for a character who is designed in the beginning to appeal to 10-year-olds. Yeah, well, we'll see. I mean, if there is a Spider-Man 4 or 5, etc., whatever happened to the Peter Parker we knew. Just as a last topic of discussion, what about the uh, the final battle, which I think we both agreed was a sort of insane convergence of the three or four separate villains of the movie into this one attack force. Um, why was it that the battle made so little sense and was just never able to move 
Well, for starters, there's a real problem with the physics of such a battle, especially when you're watching it from the front row of the theater. Uh, it's hard to tell who's doing what. But more to the point, the alliance between two of the major villains of the movie, Venom and Sandman, is set up via a, a seven-second scene in which Venom literally crawls up to Sandman and says, you want to kill Spider-Man, I want to kill Spider-Man, let's go for it. And right. that's and it. This is a, and this is 20 minutes before the end of a 140-minute movie in right. which they've pursued their aims completely separately with no knowledge of each other. Right. Um, somehow they found each other on the streets of New York and made this alliance in a matter of seconds. And then in in the battle itself, we have, of course, Venom and Sandman fighting Spider-Man. We have Mary Jane trapped in a cab high above the streets of the city. We have Harry Osborn, the Green Goblin, now fighting on the side of good shortly before his untimely demise. So we have four or five or six major players. I even thought of a subplot, too. You've got Venom fighting with himself in the the brief scenes when Spider-Man sort of tries to get him to rip off the black suit of evil and and go back to him. So let's say say four villains, two good guys, and a, or sorry, three villains, two good guys, and a, a damsel in distress. And yet, these villains, it never dawns on them that they might be well served when fighting Spider-Man to both punch him at the same time. In fact, what we see instead is that Sandman wails on Spider-Man for a while, Spider-Man gets away from Sandman, and then Venom wails on him for a while. Spider-Man gets away from Venom, and Sandman wails on him for a while. At no point does Venom even say, hey, Sandman, I'll hold him down. You punch him with your enormous sand hands. That's some pretty basic military strategy. When forming an alliance, actually do something together to it's your true. common enemy. Apparently they didn't have time to discuss it, though, as there were only 20 minutes left in the movie. Maybe it just gave each of them a chance to rest. Like, one of them could go take a sort of little sand nap while the other did some punching. That's true. Uh, so the scene, I mean, it's so overstuffed and so over the top and so ridiculous. And it even has a scene of Spider-Man flying in and landing in front of a billowing American flag and the crowd exploding into oh, applause. Oh, painful moment. Painful. And there's so much in it. It's sort of a microcosm for the movie as a whole in that it could have been this idea of, and all these different villains could have filled up three different movies. But somewhere, somehow, Sam Raimi and his collaborators on this movie decided, well, I like all these characters. Let's throw them all in and see what happens. And when you say that, I suddenly remember, I don't know if it was the climactic scene, but I remember a very climactic scene in the second Spider-Man that worked so well because of the simplicity of it. The moment when some huge kind of iron wall was about to fall on Mary Jane. Do you remember? And Spider-Man mm-hmm. was holding it up all by himself. And right. there's this moment he looks at her and says, this is really heavy. <laughs> and it's great because it's, you know, it just sort of subverts the whole the whole superhero context in that one line. I mean, there never would have been time for anything like that to happen right. in Spider-Man 3 because there's just too much clanking machinery going on at every second. The only equivalent in this movie speaks very directly to the problems with the movie, which is Spider-Man, after his first attack by Sandman, flying away and saying, God, God, where do these guys come from? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the villains keep on coming in Spider-Man 3. They never stop. Right. Yeah, that that should be our question, right? Where do these guys come from? And will they please stop? There's so many villains that they needed to make one good. All right. Well, Dan, thank you for sitting through that that painful and uncomfortable screening with me the other night and for joining me for this spoiler special. Thanks a lot. For Slate.com, I'm Dana Stevens. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.